Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased, indeed honored, to have with us historian author Professor Stolberg Reilinger. She is Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Munster and Rector of the Institute for Advanced Studies in Berlin. Her books include The Holy Roman Empire, A Short History by Princeton University Press, and The Emperor's Old Clothes, Constitutional History and the Symbolic Language of the Holy Roman Empire. And today we are discussing her newest book, Maria Theresa, a Habsburg Empress in Her Time, published by Princeton University Press. Welcome, Professor. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Professor, uh, why did you write this book? Oh, that is a... The question is not easy to answer. I... um, (laughs) I wanted to write a biography as such. I wanted to try if I'm uh, able to to meet this genre correctly. And then I thought about a person I could write about. And it happened that an anniversary, uh, the the 300th anniversary of her birth um, came. So uh, the publishing house wanted me to, to write a biography on this person. But it was more or less by chance. I wanted to take one person to our biography of one person as a kind of key to the 18th century because i'm uh, yeah I, I think this century is particularly interesting for us today because it is uh, such an ambiguous century it's it's partly pre-modern partly baroque pre-modern but uh, on the other hand also already modern in many respects. It's the age of enlightenment, but on the other hand, it's still the age of absolute monarchies, of Baroque piety, uh, of religious uh, rule, and so on. So it it has a very ambiguous character. And uh, it turned out that this figure, Maria Theresia, um, is a very um, good key to the century because her reign covered 40 uh, four decades of, of that century. She was born in 1714 and died in 1780. And so her lifespan covered uh, more or less the whole century. And her person and her character, to me, seems to be uh, similarly ambiguous as the whole century. And so uh, it turned out that I choose the, <laughs> chose the right person to write a biography about. Would it be true to say that while not uncritical of her, you exercise a considerable empathy for uh, Maria Theresa? Yeah, empathy may be the wrong word because, I mean, when uh, you... I use the word empathy in the, in the Rankian sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I try to distance myself from the figure because... I mean, she lived in the 18th century. The 18th century is very, in many respects, very far away from us. It is uh, dangerous, or there is the danger of uh, of anachronism if you uh, if you have the illusion that you are able to immediately or directly understand a person of that century. So I try to take a distance perspective and a kind of ethnographic gaze, so to speak, to, to uh, look, to, to focus on, the, on the, the strange, the distant, the foreign uh, traits of the century as well as of her character. Uh, because I am convinced that um, the way many biographers write about that person, uh, namely by um, kind of introspective uh, writing yeah, is misleading because uh, if you if you write about a century um, 300 years ago you have to be aware of the 
of all the obstacles to immediate understanding. And um, this is why I try to avoid too much empathy and I try to to uh, keep her at arm's length, so to speak. And then, of course, when you when you uh, are occupied with one person for such a long time, and it took me years, of course, to write the book, you get acquainted, so you get familiar with the person in a way. And um, so in the end, when I, uh, and, uh, when I wrote about her death, I, I did have empathy with, with the person, but it took me a long time. And there are many, there are many uh, traits of her character that are not very, um, not very nice to say the least. And so, um, yeah, there is not so much sympathy with the person and empathy also only in a very limited uh, degree. Uh, from what you say, it comes across more as an anthropologist rather than a historian. Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. Because, I mean, this is the early modern period or pre-modern period, I would say, in, in, in German, um, Modern. Um, and so, to my opinion, it is uh, misleading to take a presentist view on, on a, a person like her. For example, like other biographers did, for example, if you uh, take her as uh, an example for a um, for, for modern um, women, as a, as a feminist avant la lettre, that, that would be completely misleading in my opinion, because the way she um, combined professional life, rule and family cannot be compared in any respect to uh, the problems a, a modern uh, mother and, and professional woman would have. So uh, yeah, this is a completely different relationship between, um, between uh, rule and, and family uh, in her case and what we uh, would call uh, a working, working woman today. So it, it, this is all absolutely misleading. Uh, she was no feminist. On the contrary, I mean, she, she was, of course, a very powerful woman, but she was always and perceived herself as the exception to the rule, the absolute exception to the rule. And she um, wanted her daughters to submit to their husbands. So she was absolutely no feminist. And so when I read other biographies uh, about her uh, written by women um, who try to uh, depict her as an example for modern um, feminism, this is, I think, the wrong way, because you just, um, I mean, this is a presentist view, and uh, if you look at her in this way, you will only find what you already know. So it is much more interesting, in my opinion, to to look at what is what is unfamiliar, what is Foreign, what is what is strange, what is maybe also odd or strange. So yeah, this is my my general approach um, when I deal with uh, the early modern period. What are your three principles, as you term them, of the biographical art? One is, as I already said, uh, this this ethnographic gaze, so to speak. Um, that was this is my my crucial methodological principle in general. Um, but then I would also mention that I try to um, combine narrative and analytical elements. I, I try to narrate her story in order to, to make the book readable, um, but also to in in um, writing stories uh, to um, to convey also messages about the structure of rule, or the structure of um, uh, generally the structure of, of the time. So narrative and analytical elements, um, I try to combine these narrative and analytical elements. And also um, in the same way to combine macro, yeah, structural history, um, history of, of structures of rule, of politics, of religion, of whatever, uh, of, of uh, gender history and so on. And on the other hand, um, to, uh, to, to make this visible uh, by micro stories, by, by little significant uh, telling stories uh, yeah, that reveal structural elements of the time. So I wanted to explain 
uh, the century by narrating little stories. Um, and I try to find, and, and the sources are extremely rich, so you can easily find telling little stories, little anecdotes and so on uh, that reveal a, a lot about the whole century. Um, and um, yeah, this um, uh, my, my, my third principle was uh, to, and this overlaps with, with what I said before, uh, I tried to avoid the illusion of omniscience. I wanted to um, I'm not an omniscient narrator, but I try to combine a lot of different perspectives of contemporaries to um, to look at the person from many, many different angles. And I wanted to avoid the impression that there is one uh, and the one and only right portrait of her. So these are my my principle my principles uh when i well my principles when i wrote the book what do we know for certain about maria Theresa's childhood um about her childhood we do not uh, actually know that much because um when she was a child her father still expected to have a male heir and so um there are not uh, so many sources about her childhood and she was not uh perceived in the sources as a, a, a significant individual yet, um, because it was not yet clear that she would become uh, the, the heiress and the, uh, the ruler. Um, we do know about court rituals like baptism, for example, but also uh, we know a little bit about her education, about her teachers, about um, uh, the disciplines she uh, she was educated in, for example, uh, that she was a very good singer and dancer, and that she had uh, already as a child uh, um, an adequate courtly habitus and a courtly uh, attitude, that she um, um, was able to uh, to 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 present herself on the court stage. I mean, the stage uh, the, the was um, was a uh, kind of theater, and uh, rulers and the ruling family had to present themselves um, all the time, uh, day by day, in uh, in the way of yeah, like a like a um, kind of theater performance. And she was um, trained to to do that from a very early age on, but uh, she was not that. Um, I mean. She had good teachers. She she was uh, educated in um, uh, several languages, uh, French and Italian, and uh, also a little bit of Latin and so on. So her education was not so far away from the education of a of a male prince. But um, she, as a as a little girl, did not leave so many uh, traces in in the sources. Um, as she would have uh, if she had been the heiress, or if it would have been clear already then that she would be the heiress of the throne. Why did she marry Francis of Lorraine? Um, so it is always been t has always been told as if she had uh, married him by inclination. It was a marriage uh, by inclination because this uh, was I would say this was. Uh, a story of the 19th century, as the 19th century historians would have it, um, but um, and and they did obviously uh, love each other. There is a correspondence um, uh, of their between them, which is I mean, they sent love letters to each other. They did, and that was very rare at the time. But it was not just a marriage by inclination, it was also, of course, as always in these ruling houses, uh, a marriage by political strategy. And uh, her father, Emperor Charles VI, wanted her to marry a lesser prince um, and not um, an heir of, of a, well, a powerful uh, dynasty uh, because he wanted to avoid that the Habsburg lands would become just parts of another great monarchy. So that was um, what he um, 
was afraid of, of course, if she had married a very uh, um, an heir of a very yeah of a great dynasty um, after the marriage uh, after her succession to the throne, her husband would have taken over the rule and would have potentially integrated the Habsburg lands into his monarchy. And so to avoid that, um, he uh, her father chose chose this um, this so to speak, prince without a land. I mean, he was absolutely poor in, in, <laughs> the, uh, in the sense of the time. So he had no territory at all uh, when he married um, uh, Maria Theresia. And that was just what the Habsburg house wanted. Uh, and, and it was a kind of, um, it was luck luck for Maria Theresia that she also lo really loved him. And um, But... That was not the reason for for this marriage. Now, the fact that he was uh, land poor, does that explain why he was so disliked by the Viennese court? Um, yeah, there were f uh, several several reasons for that. I mean, he was he was disrespected at uh, the Habsburg court because um, he was seen to be to be weak, timid. Uh, lazy, indecisive, and so on, which is not uh, not absolutely true. I mean, it's partly true, but not uh, not completely so. Um, he was he was interested in politics, um, and he tried to influence uh, his wife, and he tried to act as an emperor. I mean, he was elected emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which was the um, the highest. Uh, honor in in Christian Europe, but um, he uh, it was it uh, turned out very soon that uh, she wouldn't let him uh, rule as an emperor as a as a as a sovereign prince. But why he was de disrespected at court um, had had several reasons. So the first point was that some courtiers would have preferred another husband for Maria Theresia, namely from the house of Bavaria, the house of Wittelsbach, because there were, um, um, uh, there were relatives of the house of Bavaria at the court. There were uh, strong um, ties of kinship between these houses. And so there was a Bavarian party, so to speak, at uh, the court of Vienna. They would have preferred a Bavarian prince. So um, this party at the court uh, would disrespect him for yeah, not being Bavarian. But he was also perceived, and there was an important point, as a French foreigner, as, a, as, a, as, a, as French. And France was the arch enemy of, um, of the House of Habsburg. So he um, was perceived as French. And he was also um, disrespected because in the first years, before he was elected emperor, um, he didn't manage to fulfill his most important aristocratic duties. So he wasn't able in the first years to beget a male heir. Yeah? In the first years, Maria Theresia only had uh, girls. <laughs> so it was, of course, his most important ta uh, um, um, task to beget a male heir, which he didn't. Um, and the second most important aristocratic task was, of course, to be uh, a military hero, and he also failed in uh, on the battlefield. I mean, he was sent uh, as a military commander um, uh, against the Turks by his uh, father-in-law, and uh, and he was uh, not at all successful. So he lost parts of the conquests his predecessors had um, had made. So he failed in, in several respects um, as an aristocratic uh, on it on, so to speak. And the last point, which is also, I think, important, when it turned out that um, as a husband, he was more or less dominated by his wife, um, he was disrespected because this turned the gender order upside down, upside down. Now he... Um, um, he appeared as a as a as a weak man, as a man who is not able to dominate his wife, and 
this was, although she was the heiress uh, to the throne, this was something that contemporaries uh, did not uh, appreciate. So there were a lot of reasons why um, he had a very bad stand at the Viennese court. Maria Theresa, 1740-1741. What was the myth and what was the reality of uh, that person and that time? Um, when she ascended to the throne as a very young woman, uh, as a as a beautiful woman, as the contemporaries called her, um, as a, a fecund woman, she uh, was attacked from all sides almost immediately. And uh, from not only by uh, the Prussian king, Frederick the Great, but also by the Bavarian um, elector, prince elector, uh, and especially also by the French, So and, and several others. So um, she was attacked, her, her lands were attacked from all sides. And this, um, and everyone would have expected her to... Um, uh, to to be defeated uh, in a very short uh, um, uh, very very short time, but she managed to defend her traditional birthright, and she only lost one of her provinces, which was a very great loss. But uh, anyway, uh, the, her her enemies had already planned to uh, distribute all her lands among themselves. So. So it was um, it was the absolutely unexpected thing. I mean, we are talking now in April 2022, and there are certain perils that come to my mind that uh, a, yeah, a country is being um, attacked from uh, one side and against all expectations manages to defend itself. And this is, of course... Um, this is, of course, uh, stuff for um, for a fairy tale. Yeah, the beautiful princess uh, attacked by from all sides by evil enemies, uh, male evil en enemies, and she, the, the beautiful female, um, uh, is able to defend herself with the help of um, her Hungarian. Um, the, the, yeah, the, the Hungarian nobles, the wild noble warriors of Hungary, and who, who enthusiastically supported this weak, uh, beautiful woman. So this is this is really a fairy tale plot, and um, this is one of the reasons why she was so. Yeah, she was. She, she's really she's a mythical figure. She became a mythical figure in uh, Austrian history. But if you have a closer look at this story about the weak princess and the, the noble warriors and so on. Um, it, is, it is, of course, a legendary uh, story because in reality, I mean, she, she did defend her lands and the, the, the Hungarians did support her, but uh, that was not the enthusiastic support uh, as it was depicted by historians, but there were uh, very um, strong uh, negotiations, very, very harsh negotiations between her and the um, and the uh, estates of Hungary and uh, a lot of Hungarian nobles uh, did not. Uh, it wasn't uh, wasn't clear from the beginning that they would uh, support her. So if you if you look at the um, minutes of these um, these this uh, diet of of um, of 1741, you will see that uh, yeah, it is not this fairy tale story as it was told in the 19th century. But um, it is, on the other hand, it is clear why this story was so appealing, that this story was so, uh, yeah, um, that, that her mythical, charismatic uh, image um, was based on this story of her um, unexpected uh, victory, or not victory, but defendants of, of her lands. Why did she After, yeah. sorry. Why did she refuse to be crowned Holy Roman Empress? Yeah, this is uh, not so easy to explain. I mean, it, what is important to know is that the Holy Roman Empire is not or is, has to be distinguished from 
the Habsburg Empire. These are two completely different things. The Habsburg Empire means the lands of the Archducal House of Habsburg, to which uh, belonged uh, belonged um, Hungary, Bohemia, Austria, and so on, and a lot of, and also parts of the Netherlands, parts of Italy, and so on. This is the Habsburg Empire, and she was king. She was king, not queen, but king of Bohemia. She was king of Hungary. She was crowned um, as king. Explicitly so. So it was, um, she was very proud of her own masculine crowns, as she called them. The Holy Roman Empire, on the other hand, was something completely different. That was the a loose federation of principalities, of electorates, of um, electoral principalities, Kurfürstentümer in German, and of uh, cities and so on. A huge, vast bundle of Different, uh, different political entities under the uh, superiority of the, the emperor, and the this empire or the, the the honor or the office of emperor was an electoral office. So you were elected emperor. You inherited the crown of Hungary and the crown of Bohemia and so on, but you were elected emperor, and at that time or in the early modern period, a woman could, under certain conditions, inherit a land of her from her yeah, of her dynasty, but she could not be elected emperor. So uh, that was for the contemporaries absolutely clear: a woman can never be elected uh, uh, um, emperor. And so uh, she had her. Husband Francis Stephen um, elected emperor for various reasons. The the so-called electors, the Kurfürsten, um, elected him as the new emperor. But she and and he was crowned emperor. But she would never have been the empress in the strict sense of the word. She would have just been the emperor's um, consort or the emperor's spouse but not empress in the sense of a sovereign ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. And this is why she, she uh, explicitly and deliberately uh, refused to, to be crowned empress of the Holy Roman Empire, um, because this was, so to speak, her husband's business, and she did not want to submit to her husband in this in this respect, yeah? um, because this was not her own crown. It would have been, um, uh, um, yeah, it would have been a secondary crown, so to speak. No? And so the, the coronation of the emperor, emperor and the coronations of the, the king of Hungary, king of Bohemia, were completely different things, completely different uh, matters. And the, the the case shows, I mean, Francis Stephen wanted her to be crowned Empress next to him, yeah, um, or even by him after his coronation, but she refused. Although he really wanted her to um, to um, to be crowned, he implored her to get crowned, but she uh, refused. And this also um, shows, and not only that she did not want to appear as being dominated by her husband, but also she also. Uh, showed by the refusal of the coronation uh, a certain disrespect to the Holy Roman Empire as such. Uh, because in the 18th century, this, this loose federation um, of, of principalities already showed a lot of um, dysfunctional, um, um, uh, yeah, there were a lot of problems of, of uh, weakness of um, medieval uh, anachronistic structure and so on, uh, and so she she also disrespected this whole political uh, medieval oldish uh, uh, yeah, political body of the Holy Roman Empire, and that was also an important reason for her refusing um, the coronation. But um, one must also say that. It was important for her that her husband um, would be crowned and that the House of Habsburg um, uh, 
could use and instrumentalize the office of emperor in several respects. So that was an, still an important office with certain privileges over all the other princes with a symbolical um, uh, priority, I mean, superiority over all the other princes of the empire. And so this, this symbolic capital of uh, the Holy Roman Empire was something she um, she uh, would would instrumentalize for her dynasty and for her own reign. What was the, in essence, from your description, would it be correct to say that Maria Theresa viewed the Holy Roman Empire in purely a pragmatic and utilitarian sense and had absolutely no illusions or romanticisms about it? Yes, 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 I would agree, yes. I mean, she was well aware that uh, there were certain um, advantages of having the office of emperor in the whole, in, in the own, um, uh, under her yeah, rule or under her, uh, that she could dominate uh, this office, that it was in her house. Um, and so she used that. The emperor was still the supreme judge of the emperor, uh, of the empire. Um, he was still the supreme uh, feudal lord of all the princes of the empire. And so, and so, and, and these, uh, Offices or honors could still be used uh, in a very, um, uh, yeah, she used them in a very smart way. So, uh, also a certain power over the over the church in uh, the Holy Roman Empire. In several respects, that was an advantage, and she made use of that without really believing in uh, in this empire. How did Maria Theresa conduct patronage politics at? in and out of the court. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, patronage was the logic, uh, the social logic uh, of uh, the time, of course, and uh, all, poli all, all politics were family politics. And so uh, she um, was able to use the system of patronage at her court, and her court was the richest and most uh, famous and highest court in, in all Europe. Um, she was able to use this in a very sophisticated, very smart way, although she um, she pretended or she staged herself as being um, absolutely beyond all um, beyond all partisanship or so. Huh? She uh, was was very smart in staging herself as the um, the sovereign uh, beyond all um, beyond all factions or beyond all parties, um, and she was also um, charismatic in that she um, she she mastered the art of um, spreading her favor and dispersing her favor among people and keeping their expectations alive. I mean, she could never, of course. Um, um, satisfy all expectations because everyone in the, the court was the place where everyone wanted to be and where everyone expected uh, favors and and uh, symbolic as well as financial economic capital and she could of course never um, um, do justice to all of them um, to all to everyone who expected something from the court but she was she did. Um, uh, um, spread out all kinds of favors in a way that, uh, in a in a very balanced way, so that everyone um, kept his or her expectations alive, and uh, that was uh, one of I think the um, solutions to the, the the puzzling question how she managed to be so um, so popular, so uh, yeah, why she had this charismatic image, although. Actually, she she did not, of course, satisfy everyone who came to her court. She didn't. She was not at all accessible to everyone, even the lowest of subjects, as uh, as everyone thought. Yeah? So it is really interesting that she was um, she she handled the social logic or the instruments of of patronage at court in a very sophisticated way, so that. Um, 
yeah, she she managed to um, to to develop this image of the perfect ruler, and very even more so as she was a woman, and uh, that was of course completely unexpected because the um, the contemporaries were convinced that women were weak uh, in in um, uh, spirit, soul, and body, and wouldn't wouldn't be able to um, to, to, to really rule, uh, and so she um, she disappointed all these expectations, and uh, uh, it was she was all the more admired uh, as contemporaries thought of uh, were of the opinion that she combined all male and female virtues in one person. Why, by the standards of the period, was Maria Theresa considered very beautiful in her youth? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, she was... Uh, beauty, female beauty, was, of course, part of her role as, uh, as a princess. Um, and beauty was, so to speak, part of her status. Uh, the, the most powerful woman uh, would also be the most beautiful woman uh, in the eyes of the time, uh, like a fairy queen. I mean, the, the princess and a uh, fairy queen is always is always beautiful, is always the most beautiful of, of women. And so, um, like um, everything else, beauty was a matter of status at the time, and of course also a matter of staging. I mean, she would be staged as beautiful, and that was hard work. Also, I mean, um, she um, she she presented herself as being beautiful, and the the criteria of beauty of the time were uh, linked to status. For example, um, beauty mm, would mean white skin. White skin means no labor. Yeah, you, she she wasn't forced to labor in in the sun to to work in the sun. Uh, she had she had white skin. He had she had a majestic walk. Yeah? She uh, she uh, would be uh, discovered e- even if she when she was wearing a mask on carnival she would uh, be um, discovered as being the queen uh, identified as the queen um, uh, immediately because of her majestic walk as the contemporary claimed at least or her upright posture yeah, was aristocratic or her um, her fair gaze and, and things like that. So all these criteria show that beauty was a matter of high aristocratic status on the one hand, um, and on the other hand, of course, a matter of perfect performance, a matter of uh, uh, hard work. Yeah, And it is interesting that um, contrary to her myth, um, her myth was that she spent no time and no effort on her outfit, that she was absolutely modest, and etc. But that is absolutely not true. If you have a closer look at the sources, you can see that uh, uh, that was she took uh, her beauty and her uh, appearance extremely seriously, and uh, she. Um, she, for example, once wrote to one of her daughters that uh, you have to represent yourself all the time. Il faut représenter partout, she writes. Yeah, wherever you go, you have to represent your yourself, your status and everything. So um, she was well aware of that, that the, the visual appearance is extremely uh, important um, as a means of, of rule. And so... Um, uh, she she uh, was very very good at that. And, but on on the other hand, when she grew older, she was she became uh, very heavy, and she um, had a sense of self irony, and she called herself uh, Fat Teresa, ironically and 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 self critically. And that was is, that is also interesting. And in a way, she was not she was not vain or idle so, so she was uh, but but she used her uh, appearance as a means of um of uh yeah of rule what was the so-called charity commission chastity i'm sorry chastity chast- <laughs> chastity the chastity commission yeah this is very uh, famous or infamous um because it was uh, so unusual at the time 
she um, installed a commission or established a commission uh, to investigate and prosecute all kinds of adultery and fornication. Um, and uh, what was uh, scandalous was that she wanted to be um, this to be prosecuted without regard to status. And that was absolutely uh, unusual because um, at the time there were double standards. Um, common men would be sentenced to death for, for, as it was called, sodomy at the time. Yeah, but um, I mean, this was very rarely executed, but uh, formally uh, there was death penalty for, for these kind of sexual um, deviance. Um, but courtiers, noblemen, uh, aristocrats would cultivate at the same time uh, same-sex relationships uh, for and also, of course, would have uh, mattresses and everything. So there was a clear um, double standard, or, or one could say a, a complex code of conduct for always uh, related to, uh, to, to status and, and relationships. So uh, an aristocratic married man would have, would, uh, could do whatever he wanted in sexual uh, matters. Whereas on the other uh, part of on the other end of the of the um, spectrum, an unmarried uh, young aristocratic woman um, would have the strongest restrictions in that respect. So, uh, and in between, there was a, a, a broad uh, spectrum of um, of norms and uh, yeah, re um, related to uh, status, age. Uh, if you were married or unmarried or, or not married or um, uh, or a widow or uh, and so on. So um, there, were no, there were, was not something like um, a general norm in sexual affairs, but a broad variety of different norms. So the Chastity Commission was um, an, an attempt to... Um, to ban all kinds of sexual um, de deviances um, whatsoever, without respect, without regard to, to status and person, and that was um, um, conceived of as a scandal for contemporaries, and they uh, they laughed at her. I mean, uh, that she tried to to uh, establish that kind of general general rule was was uh, ridiculous at the time, and. Um, so uh, even her greatest admirers criticized her about about this uh, so-called chastity commission, and it was of course not um, successful. But she tried. I mean, um, it was it was really harsh uh, because she um, used to deport um, women uh, and and also men whom she uh, who, who violated these new rules. To Transylvania, so there was yeah uh, once every uh, year uh, at a certain time uh, all these um, delinquents would be sent to Transylvania and uh, yeah deported uh, from uh, the from her lands and that was um, that was detrimental. Many of them um, had nothing to to uh, to gain their living in uh, Transylvania and and uh, starved from hunger or um, yeah or returned to uh, the Habsburg lands. So the whole thing, this whole chastity um, uh, program, was uh, a complete failure. What was Maria Theresa's relation to what is known in the Anglophone world as the Enlightenment? The Enlightenment. Yeah, this is a very interesting question because, um, yeah, she had this was an ambig a completely ambiguous relationship because, on the one hand, Maria Theresa, as a very, very pious, very religious uh, woman, detested uh, the and feared the movement of enlightenment, especially uh, French enlightenment, um, that what we usually call enlightenment, uh, let's say, uh, the texts or the, the um, writings by Voltaire, uh, Rousseau, uh, the Diderot, d'Alembert, the Encyclopédie, for example, and all these kind of uh, French literature, French uh, writings, um, 
she detested yeah and she was afraid of them um because uh, and she called them um she called that philosophy a la mode um yeah and um the philosophers the modern philosophers um had no faith no morals no uh, accepted no authority and so on that was her um idea about the enlightenment but on the other hand she did not really know the enlightenment she she of course had never read these books she she didn't know anything about it she was just afraid of them and um but on the other hand um and she banned these books from her court and and she uh of course forbid her her kids to to read that and so on but on the other hand um she did not know that her uh, officials her her closest aides uh were strong admirers of enlightenment were readers of these enlightened books for example kaunitz her most important uh, state chancellor and most important advisor was a uh, a fan of the of all these enlightened uh, writings and was a kind of trojan horse of the enlightenment at her court so um much of what her advisors introduced uh reforms and um ideas and so on uh, also the educators of uh, her son introduced the ideas of enlightenment to her court um without her knowing anything of that so um this is a also a very interesting ambiguous relationship and on the other hand one must say that uh, she was something uh, some, someone who um was absolutely able to make use of her own of her own reason yeah as the famous definition of enlightenment by immanuel kant uh, would have it and she she was in a way an enlightened person for example she fought against all kinds of superstition she uh, she banned vampirism yeah vampirism the belief in vampires was flourishing at the time in in some parts of her lands and she uh she banned uh, uh this kind of superstition and and many other um superstitious practices and so on so she actually was an enlightened person but uh she wasn't aware of that and she was uh, on the other hand uh, uh, uh extremely hostile to what she um thought enlightenment was How did she react to the death of her husband in 1765? The death of her husband was a, a real cesura in in her reign and in her life uh, because she had a very strong uh relationship to him which was unusual usually um uh, uh princely couples were very distanced and and did not often did not even live together um not to speak of a, a common uh, shared bedroom but this was different in in her case they had um one bedroom and they slept together in one bed which was uh, very unusual and almost a scandal at the time and uh, one um one observer wrote in his diary they do it like the peasants do yeah only peasants sleep in one bed. So um that was absolutely unusual. He he was for her a very important confidant. She used to to speak about her problems uh with him um uh, when they went to bed and so on. So uh his death, his sudden death, unexpected death was uh, a cesura in her life and uh, she became melancholic. she fell into deep melancholy she retreated from the court almost uh, completely um and she cultivated her widowhood um in in various ways uh for example she um she um uh her religious exercises uh, uh were uh, she, she intensified her religious exercises she uh uh prepared she began to prepare for her own death she she once wrote that she conceived of her widowhood as the preparation for death and uh so it was a very yeah a very dark a very um 
yeah, depressed atmosphere at her court from that uh, moment on. And um, the, the important consequence, of course, was that uh, she made her son Joseph co-regent um, because he and she made him, um, he became a uh, successor of his father as elector, of the, uh, as, as emperor of the Holy Roman Empire uh, and co-regent in, uh, in the Habsburg, regent in the Habsburg lands. And this caused um, an ongoing, uh, yeah, latent or uh, also uh, open conflict between her and her son. Why did she agree to the dissolution of the Jesuit orders in the Habsburg lands? Yeah, this is a question uh, that uh, touches the very complicated relationship, her relationship to the Catholic Church or the Church in general. Um, on the one hand, she was extremely pious and the Catholic Church or the Catholic faith the one and only true Christian faith in her eyes, of course, um, was the base, the, the basis of her rule. And she was um, convinced that she had a divine mandate to rule, that there was a kind of trade-off between the House of Habsburg and her and, and God, um, in the sense that um, God uh, rewarded the House of Habsburg by uh, keeping it at the top of Christianity and uh, in return the House of Habsburg would um, take care of the true religion and defend the true religion against Turks and Protestants and so on against all its enemies. Um, so there was a very close relationship to the Catholic religion but on the other hand uh, Maria Theresia was also convinced that she had an immediate relationship to God and her house had an immediate relationship to God. So she was not, uh, she, she was not dependent on the church and the earthly servants of the church, the, the priests and so on and the, the Catholic hierarchy and even the Pope. So she took a very um, independent, very sovereign attitude uh, to to the Catholic hierarchy. She tried to keep a very uh, a good relationship, uh, yeah, a good relationship to, to the Pope, but if the Pope interfered and um, uh, interfered in her territories, in her, uh, in the church and her territories, she would, um, she would uh, not tolerate that. So, and she began to establish a church reforms which made the church in her in her lands uh, instruments of uh, the central um, the central administration and the, the uh, her own uh, her own rule um, and um, so this was again this very ambiguous um, relationship to, to Catholicism and now the Jesuits um, are a very special case because um, on the one hand, uh, her house had a very close relationship to the Jesuit order since the age of confessionalization or the age of the counter-reformation. And the Jesuits were a very important pillar of, of um, the Catholic, Catholic rule. But, and, and her confessors were Jesuits, her advisors uh, were, some of her advisors were Jesuits. But, um, on the other hand, um, the, um, she shied away from a conflict with the House of Bourbon, um, who fought the order. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the uh, King of Spain and the King of France fought against the Jesuit order, and she—that uh, was at a time when she um, had just established a strong alliance with France through the marriage uh, of Marie Antoinette with Dauphin, etc. Um, so the French uh, were her new allies. And so she shied away from, uh, from um, a conflict with um, the French king and the House of Bourbon in general. And so when they um, uh, uh, forced the Pope to, dissol to dissolve uh, the order, she did not uh, protest in any way. And this was one reason, but on the other hand, it was also for her a very uh, advantageous situation because she could use 
the properties of the Jesuit order to uh, establish a um, uh, um, 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 a secular a system of education, which was under state control. Now she could bring the educational system system under her own control, uh, because the Jesuits, the Jesuit order was, of course, the uh, most important um, pillar of the educational system, the higher educational system in all Catholic countries. So the dissolution of the order was a very um, good occasion to. Uh, get the educational system under her state control. In Edward Crankshaw's 1960s biography of Maria Theresa, the subtitle of the book is The Last Conservative. Now, in the March issue of the British periodical, The Literary Review, which contains John Adamson, a 17th century British uh, specialist of your book, which is extremely laudatory, I must say, if you haven't read it, uh, it, the um, review is titled Maria Theresa's Revolutionary Rule. Revolutionary or conservative? In your opinion, which one of the two is she? Or was, was she? Uh, yeah, I would say uh, neither nor or, or uh, both. Yeah, This is, uh, as I, I wanted to point out by saying that her rule was ambiguous and her personality was ambiguous as the whole century was. Um, I would say she was she was both. I mean, um, on the one hand, in many respects, she was um, revolutionary. Uh, revolutionary would be an exaggeration. I would say she wasn't a revolutionary. Uh, she was she was her rule was based on tradition, on century long tradition of the archducal house of Habsburg, of the um, tradition of the Catholic Church, uh, and so on. So basically, I would say her reign was, her rule was, was very, very uh, much rooted in tradition. But on the other hand, as I also try to, to point out, um, she was an enlightened ruler uh, without being aware of it. Yeah, and her, her reforms and her um, also a very courageous uh, way of dealing with the problems of her time uh, was in a way uh, not revolutionary, but was not no longer based in uh, on traditional um, the traditional art of rule. But I I would say I would stress the traditional part more than the revolutionary part. I would say and the reforms she. Um, I mean, there is a series of reforms that she initiated, uh, and that was, of course, um, uh, innovative, not revolutionary, but innovative. But on the other hand, the reforms um, did not achieve what she wanted to achieve. The reforms, um, or she, she initiated a series of reforms, and reforms of reforms of reforms. Once she had... Um, uh, uh, installed this, this this reform policy, um, all the reforms turned out not to be sufficient, and so uh, a, a whole um, avalanche of reforms uh, started. And that was, of course, not what she had uh, in mind. And when she uh, grew old, and when she before she died, she was absolutely convinced that her reign had been a complete failure. Complete failure. She had failed in her own perception. She had failed in any respect. And so, uh, and she, of course, would never have called herself a revolutionary. Um, um, so it, it depends on what you mean by revolution, what you mean by uh, conservative and tradition, but she would always have called herself a conservative monarch, I think. I mean, the, the word conservative Conservative and conservatism is, of course, uh, a concept of the 19th century and uh, was not, uh, I mean, in the, the 18th century, uh, this concept was not existing. Uh, and the, the concept of revolution and revolutionaries, um, um, neither. So these are anachronistic uh, adjectives in a way. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, that's a very <laughs> interesting, very, very difficult question. Um, what should they take away? I mean, 
I, I think it would be good uh, if the readers would um, would develop an, an understanding of the strangeness of that period and would be able to understand what female rule at the time really meant and uh, how the how the social logic of the time and at court at least or in this aristocratic ancien regime um, um, uh, atmosphere how the social logic worked yeah. this this um, this is i think something that uh, should or was for me at least one of the most important insights i myself had when i when i uh, wrote the book and when i studied the sources and so that there is a certain pre-modern social logic um, that worked very differently from um, the social logic of our modern societies. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thank you.